The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us, senior editor at Future Sox. Happy lockout, James. It happened. Uh, it's what we were expecting. It's what baseball was expecting. And yet, here we are, a lockout again. And that's something, too. I mean, we have a lot on tap on today's show. But my goodness, like, at the beginning of the season, we were talking about lockout. The owners knew about the lockout. The players knew the lockout was on its way. And still, nothing could get accomplished and from what's been kind of circled around social media, at least that's how we get our information from, you know, the insiders. They're saying this lockout could could last till late February. I mean, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you saw the, the flurry of activity that we're not really used to. And I think a lot of fans, you know, have kind of said like, oh, there, there needs to be some sort of like transaction deadline to make free agency kind of more like the NBA and the NFL. And we, we kind of had it. It was awesome. Right. I, I've always said like in an uncapped league, I didn't really think that was possible. Right. Like the reason why the NFL is like that is because teams like literally run out of money. So they just, you know, everybody signs in 48 hours, but that was kind of cool. And then, you know, I feel like, you know, you, for what we do and, you know, even just like fans and people that we talk about, you get up and you check Twitter immediately. And then you, you know, you close Twitter on your phone and pull up Twitter on your computer because we're crazy you know and it's like oh what happened next and there was all these moves and now there's nothing um and there's not going to be anything for a long time it seems you know jeff pass of espn said you know 60 to 90 days and honestly that that might be like optimistic honestly from some of this like you know just if we want to get into some of it like it, they were talking about this lockout since they signed the deal in 2016 like because it was so bad for the players and the players signed it like I remember insiders then like oh wait till 2021 it's going to be terrible and we caught a glimpse of that you know when they were trying to negotiate before the 2020 season so you know I think this is different than that because there's there's fans in the in the park and look if they miss actual baseball games I would still be surprised but you know how like unions work, like there, there's really nothing to negotiate about right now. Like it's, I, I would like the two sides to just, you know, like lobby back and forth. Like, okay, th- we'll trade you this for this, like, et cetera. But, it, but it's like, not like that. It's like one, one side submits a proposal 
And then it's like crickets for like weeks at a time. So I just kind of expect that until definitely January, you know, until we hear like, okay, they're like talking again, even it's just, this whole thing is, is crazy. And it really does like alienate fans. I I think like, especially people that don't care as much as like us or people that cover it. Yeah. In 2016, I'm thinking back. I'm like, I didn't really, well, obviously it was a different time for me, at least in terms of being in tuned with this sort of detail, but I just kind of put it off to the side in my in my mental banks. I said, you know what? They're going to figure this out. And they did. And I wasn't really paying attention to it because ultimately they didn't miss any games. Well, now, after living through 2020, I have no faith in the owners at all uh, and the MLBPA, for that matter, to come to an agreement uh, cordially because – we saw it in 2020. We lived it. We already went through it. You know, it's it just one thing after another, after another, there were several reasons why they decided to keep pushing back negotiations. And here we are again saying, okay, well, this is all, I feel like part of the plan on the owner's sake. So let's get into some key issues. Let's break down what we have on the podcast here. Good to have you with us again on the future Sox podcast. So we're going to talk MLB lockout to start. You know, there's several key issues, James, that, you know, you're well-versed about. So I want to get your take on the salary floor implications, potentially some luxury tax information. Um, service time manipulation is a big one. That's something that I think has been uh, discussed regularly for years now. Uh, it was similar, James. It reminded me of you know taking away the option attached to players who uh, opt out right uh, for pl- free agents to be signed. Remember previously, it would cost teams a, f- a first-round draft pick to uh, bring them aboard, which are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Uh, playoffs, designated hitter, uh, and then as well, how it relates to minor league baseball signings, the international signing period. James, I know you got some stuff on Oscar Colas, and we'll see you know, when the date of the international signing period comes to pass. We'll get your take there, as well as the 40-man roster as it relates to the Chicago White Sox, which stands currently on December 5th. 2021 at 35 so it'll be fun too to go back and listen to this podcast as hopefully we expect the lockout to end and the White Sox make some moves to improve the roster Rick Hahn did say that he expects the roster to look tremendously different on opening day I'm paraphrasing not sure if he said tremendously but he did say it would look different on opening day compared to where it is now so pardon me for feeling a little optimistic that the White Sox can get a World Series contender back out onto the field in 2022 all right James let's start with the lockout as much as I don't want to I need to learn about it because this is what we're going to be dealing with over the next few months some of the key issues that I listed you know the salary floor is the one that intrigues me guys I think And we were even discussing this, too, with the salary floor. You think about a lot of the heavy contracts that good teams would maybe prefer to unload and bad teams would be willing to take on just to reach the luxury floor. Now, I think that's just thinking out loud, but it's one of the things that I'm sure that the owners in the MLBPA are discussing. But prior to the podcast, you mentioned that this could be an issue. Why is a luxury floor an issue? Well, So, I mean, like, first of all, like, the players have always fought against, like, a salary cap. And that's why, you know, baseball is different than every other sport. Like, all the other leagues have a cap. Baseball doesn't. You know, they do have the luxury tax line. But, like, your big spenders have have blown past that line, like, multiple seasons where it hasn't really been an issue. You know, one of the issues for the players is that they feel like, you know, the non-competitive teams, like, it's ridiculous, right? Like, there's 12 teams out of 30 some years not trying. You know, like, I don't really think 
spending more money necessarily though is the answer to that. Like you just alluded to it in in what when you were just saying like what teams could essentially do, right? Like look at it from the perspective of the White Sox. They have Dallas Keuchel. So say so you put this salary floor in, right? And you're the Pittsburgh Pirates. Like you could just trade for Dallas Keuchel to like take the money, but that doesn't mean that you're going to win anymore. Like you're still tanking. So at the heart of this thing, like if they want more players or they want more teams actually trying, I, I just like, I don't really think the salary floor is, is necessarily the way to do it. And I don't think the salary floor is going to happen anyway. Like, I, I just like, don't think small market owners are going to go for it. That's another one of the things that the players have asked for. They want less luxury or less, um, like revenue sharing for teams. So right now, like your, your big market clubs, like fund some of your other small market clubs, you know, and they get the extra draft picks and they get extra international space. And, and a lot of these clubs just like pocket the money and they don't put it back into the baseball team. And so like money is the core issue in this thing. Like always, there's other more interesting stuff. Like for us, like the, the draft changes and possible international draft and, universal dh like those things are all fine and i think they all probably agree on that but the the money will be the big thing and how it's distributed you know we talked a little bit off air i think the single biggest issue for the players honestly should be raising um the you know the opening like salaries for players basically and i don't i don't know what the major league minimum is i should have looked it up before the show but i didn't you know but it's like whatever like five hundred thousand or something like that if your major league minimum gets closer to a million dollars where you have like players making significantly more money sooner it essentially creates the salary floor that the players want i feel like because then you're you know your teams that are trying to spend no money are obviously spending more money on you know, like first year players and stuff like that. So I think that's like a, a big issue. You know, I, I, the reports are that the owners like have dismissed that like out of hand completely. They don't want any changes to the system because the system's great for them, which is why this thing is going to take a while. Right. Because they're just like, Oh no, we think it's perfect. Well, it's clearly not perfect, but you know, the players accepted this agreement in 2016. So they're, they're going to have a tough time wrestling back, you know, some of this, some of this stuff and like a bigger piece of the pie. And I think they'll get some of it, but negotiations in theory haven't even really started yet. Right. Because like they're they're the players are at this point, like kind of asking for everything, even though I think it's reasonable, they're just not in a position of strength right now because of 2016. So a major league minimum quickly, $570,500. And you were talking about the value of having like a raised major league minimum. What essentially does that do to the market? How does it uh, help the players in terms of leverage in these negotiations? Like you said, you know, there's a lot of issues and we'll get to maybe some of the, some of the issues that the players have strong cases for, but regarding an increase in the major league minimum, do you think that, would solve the problem of having a salary tax floor or a, or a, a salary floor and maybe a lower luxury tax ceiling. Um, Cause I know teams would prefer not to lower the luxury tax threshold. Uh, what is it? 210 million at this point. Do you think a raised major league minimum would, would help in that regard? I do. So, you know, like the owners have, they proposed a $190 million luxury tax ceiling, which, was nonsense like since like in an agreement i think or in in talk they're talking like 214 to 220 something in there which seems more reasonable and you're 
your Steve Cohen's and your Dodgers group and those teams, like they'll just blow past it because they don't care. Like whatever, it's fine. But like essentially what raising the minimum would do is even if you raised it, what, like 300,000, even if it was like 850,000, you could have players making more than a million dollars in their first three years, right? Like right now, you have like pre-arb, like every, you know, you always talk about guys that are pre-arbitration. Well, they basically make like nothing. Now it's a lot for you and I, obviously, but like they're playing 162 games and they're making, you know, like under under a million dollars. So then, when you're Baltimore, you're one of these teams that's like not trying to win. You just like have a bunch of these guys, and then you're you're like paying nothing basically. So it also helps the players in the sense that like maybe they do get cut loose sooner, right? And then they get they could easily like go sign somewhere else because they're still valuable players. It's just their rebuilding club didn't feel like paying them nine hundred and fifty thousand in year two. Well, somebody else gladly would. So that's where like that could help players too. Um, free agency is obviously a hot button issue. Like the players or the owners proposed twenty nine years old or something crazy. Like that that's absurd. Like that's never going to happen. Like your Juan Sotos of the world are free agents at 25 years old and they get mega contracts like that. That's not going away. What the players proposed to me makes sense. And, you know, Evan Drellick of the athletic is probably the best in the business right now. at just like discussing this stuff. And it's, it's not fun, obviously like these, these discussions, but he's, he's pretty plugged in and, you know, puts it in a way that's relatable for people um, but what the players have basically said is like no change in year one of a new agreement. And then after that, it's six years of service time and like 29 and a half years old. And then after a few years, it's six years of service time and like 28 and a half years old. And then in like the last years of the agreement, it's five years of service for all free agents and like the same, like 28 and a half years old or something, which like to me seems reasonable. You know, I mean, if, if you don't make it until to the big leagues until you're like 26 and a half, then you become a free agent, you know, three years later, which I guess isn't great for the clubs. But I mean, like that's that's a very rare case that that happens. Right. So but I mean, like on the other end of that, like then you're not a free like in the current system, you know, like say you break out as a 28 year old. Right. You're, you're not a free agent until you're 34 and the league has basically said, like, oh, well, we're not interested in paying guys in their mid-30s. So then, like, you essentially never get paid. So that's where, like, the issues – that's why this is, like, a huge economic issue. The players have kind of relented a little bit on the service time thing. I know everybody – like, we talk about service time and gaming the system. But as long as it's, like, a number – like, a date-based system, right? It's 172 games is a, is a major league season. There's always going to be a way for, like, the clubs to – kind of work around that so uh, the players haven't even really focused on that they're just they're focusing on they're focusing on getting players paid sooner um and and competitive balance basically they don't they don't want as many teams not trying which i completely understand and there's you know there's some draft changes too that we can get into here in a, in a few minutes like the, nothing certain but you know there were some ideas that you know i'd like to debate with you too just like on the draft even though that's definitely not the main issue of this lockout, like the, the economics are the, are the biggest deal and it's complicated and, you know, kind of sucks that we're here, but here we are. Yeah. We'll hit on the draft. I just quickly to follow up. Wasn't there a proposal that included a hard age of 29 years old that was out there? So the owner, so the owners put that out first and, and that's like, that's never going to happen. And I think the owners know that that's never going to happen, but I mean like, yeah, like this is where, 
like I think you and I like look I, I'm a teacher obviously people know that from you know who whatever who follow me or whatever we have you know we have a I'm in a union too and I don't know like I would like to just think that these people could like sit around a table and be like well do you think about this okay like we'll both give a little bit but it's extreme on both sides until it's not and then all of a sudden there's an agreement but like yeah it's it's crazy like you start from a level of like this is never going to happen. This is our proposal. And then you work back from there, which is obviously super frustrating when it's like an entertainment product, right? And like nothing's happening for months at a time. Yeah. Yeah. I just thinking about the hard age of 29, I just, I feel like that hurts the players in so many different ways. I mean, there's so many variables that come into play when it comes to your career. I feel like the, the adjustable, you know, there's a little give there, James. I, I like where your head's at, or at least where Evan Drellich was was reporting. You know, from the players' side, I think that that proposal makes a little bit more sense. You know, I, th- I feel like there's a, there's some wiggle room there for both the, the owners and the players in terms of not. It, I think it does take care of service time manipulation. Um, it it does come into play with a player who's like sort of aging and progressing at a different rate in terms of success. Uh, in his major league career. However, I feel like still the player feels like he is in control of his career more so than where the current situation is. And definitely more so than if there was a hard age at 21 that would justify free agency. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, like I I was surprised that the players already went there, honestly, that it was already a, cause I thought, you know, the owners are like, okay, 29 years old, right? So it'd be really easy for the players to say, okay, uh, do after five years, right? Which is extreme too, which is not going to happen. But they said, like, they put in right away, like, okay, six or this age thing, which which mm-hmm. is, I think is reasonable. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, okay, maybe this thing's closer than we think. But apparently not because the owner saw the proposal, said no, took their balls and went home. And they're just yeah. like, nope, that's it. You know, oh, that's the way and, they and like right now, honestly, like, look, I was unhappy with how the MLBPA handled the stuff in 2020 and we got into it. And, I, you know, I don't I don't like how they, you know, screwed over minor leaguers and people that but like how anybody could take the owner's side of this right now is absolutely absurd to me because they're just they're they're not negotiating in good faith. Like they're like, yeah, no, like you know, like Rob Manfred, and obviously, like, look, Ma- Rob Manfred's a puppet for the owners. Like, Ro- Rob Man, this is not all like Rob Manfred's idea. Like, it- people have like a warped sense of what the Major League Baseball commissioner does. Like, he mm-hmm. he works for the owners and makes the owners a lot of money. That's it. Like, it's not even really up to him. It's like up to the owners, and right. he's not going to bring anything back to them if he doesn't think it's going to get twenty three votes or whatever is necessary. So. Yeah, like it's it's a tough gig and he's well compensated for it and he's kind of paid to be the bad guy. So, you know, and he and he will be as this goes on. But, you know, in addition to that, like the tanking thing, it's a huge yeah. issue. And look, I, I don't know, like tanking became the buzzword, right? Like, look, teams have done rebuilding forever because it's it's smart. And I think we've you know, we've talked about that, right? Like if you're in the situation like the White Sox were in in 2016, like you have two choices. You can either spend like $350 million to get your way out of it, or you can take a step back, rebuild your system, and then like kind of redo everything smartly. And it, and it's happened for years and years. Now there's your small market clubs that are perpetually rebuilding, right? But it does make sense. 
And it's like not a Cubs podcast either, obviously, but like taking a step back, like is essential for some of these teams to do sometimes. So like, that's always going to be a thing. Like the fact that like tanking is looked at as like this terrible thing for the sport has always kind of bothered me because I think like when you do it in good faith, like you are doing it to eventually be good. Like the Mm -hmm. whole point of this thing is to like win a championship. It's not to go, you know, to win 73 games every year and like try to like make fans feel good that you're trying like on a random Tuesday. Like that doesn't do anything if like you're never going to compete for titles. So I just like the tanking thing. I, I don't really know how you get rid of it. There's been proposals with the, with the draft to where they make it kind of like an NBA system or like, so like every team that doesn't make the playoffs goes into a lottery and that determines the top three. But then after that, it still goes by record. So if you're the Baltimore Orioles and you have the worst record in baseball and like three teams jump you for number one, like I think they would still tank to get four personally, because it's like, you know what I mean? Like it's still better than picking 14th. Like it just is like there's, there's more money. So you know, barring like more changes to the draft system. I just, I don't really know how you change it. The other thing that I've been against, like, and you've seen this too, you know, there's been some who have said like, give the number one pick, you know, to the non-playoff team with the best, like the team that tries the hardest, like out of the, you know, the teams that are bad basically. But that doesn't make sense either. Because if you look at the Arizona Diamondbacks this year, like, they're, they're, they have the second pick, I believe. Like, they earned the second pick. Like, they didn't come into the year thinking, hey, we're going to be terrible and, like, tank this thing. Like, they thought they were decent, and they sucked. So, like, I feel like a team like that deserves the first or second pick. So, I, I don't know what the answer is. It'll definitely be different. There will be changes to the to the draft model um, for sure. But it does, I mean, yeah, like, bad teams bad teams are rewarded right now and we've talked about it for years and that's one of the reasons why like you know some teams are incentivized to not win and the players the players hate it yeah and for owners like the perception of fans seeing that their favorite team has a payroll of 40 million dollars year after year and they're clearly not spending to compete like major league baseball doesn't like the optics of that however like you're saying when there's a plan to it there's no better plan than to tear it all down and to build it all back up from the ground floor and essentially, when you hear tanking, I don't, I don't know, like tanking in baseball, it's hard to necessarily pair the two, like, because over over the course of 162 game season, if you're bad, you're bad, and it, there's no other way around it. So you might as well commit to being bad and then prep for two, three years down the road um, with the draft. And we'll get into the draft here as well, James. Uh, and if you couldn't tell the listener, James Fox is. Just about as locked in as anybody uh, when it comes to these early stages of the negotiation. So I'm looking forward to this conversation as well as it relates to minor league baseball. And just to bring it back to 2020 as well, real quick, it, the, the owners don't necessarily have the leverage of instituting uh, a 60 game season due to COVID in this regard. Unless I'm missing something, James, do the owners have the power to say, OK, we're going to miss X percent amount of games until we get what we want? No, but if the players are locked out, there's not going to be any baseball. So, like, they could essentially just, like, not come back to the table and then, right. you know, it goes into the season. But, no, they don't get – but the other thing with that is, too, it's all right. Like, I've seen on Twitter, like, people that are like, oh, like, we saw this in 2020. This is the owner's plan. Like, they want to play 60 games. And it's like, that's absurd. Like, they wanted to do that in 2020 
because there were no fans in the stands. And I know mm-hmm. people don't like want to believe that, you know, the billionaires lost money. And like, I won't even say like they probably didn't lose money, but they didn't make the money that they were otherwise going to make. You know, I think that's more fair to say. They didn't care about like losing games that year because you're not making any money like when the games are played. Like you're making TV, but like you're not you're there's no fans in the stands. Like the mm-hmm. owners don't want to play 60 games. Fans can go. Like they want to play 162. Now, I'm sure they'd sacrifice some to like, you know, keep a good model like going into the future, but that's it's to- this is totally sure. different than 2020 because of that. Like and there especially- there were no fans in stadiums. This time there will be. I'm sorry, like they're bad you know, and some of them are bad people too, but like they, they, they don't want to play 60 games in a season when you can play 160, like in front of fans. Well, of course. And too, like prior to the, the, the second round of negotiations in 2020, the players association agreed to a deal so their players can get paid. So that was also a part of this thing uh, in 20. That's a lot different now. Like you said, you know, players just won't play if there's just not an agreement and major league baseball doesn't have uh, any workers to go out there and, produce a product for the owners to profit off of so this is going to be it's, a good time yeah well I, <laughs> the other yeah like i will say like in years past and previous lockouts you know it's it's the same playbook from owners like in pretty much every sport right and look every player is not a millionaire i don't want to do the millionaires versus billionaires thing yeah, we, yeah. Ju- we mm-hmm. just talked about this but billionaires have a lot more money than, than millionaires do and generally what happens is like you squeeze the middle class of the sport and like the the big boys are fine, but the guys at the bottom are not. And eventually, like they need a paycheck. So then eventually they make a deal. <clears throat> and that's happened in like the history of professional sports in this country forever. So it's like the owners win these deals because they just wait and wait and wait and wait. And then the players cave and the players accept a deal. And like, you know, they get some of the stuff they want, but not all of it. So that's obviously like what the owners are trying to do here. This is like a little bit different, I feel like, this time for the first time ever, though, because it's the first like major work stoppage, like in the social media era. Players are like, you know, you saw like they they changed their profile photos to the, you know, the copy thing at MLB.com. Like, it's kind of funny. And like, you know, you can talk directly to the fans. And, and there are like some reports that the players have like a reserve fund you know, that they've been like saving up to where like they would actually get paid something still, you know, if this like dragged into the season. So I do think they're more ready than ever to fight. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. Like, I just yeah. like it's it's really bad PR from the owners, but they've always they've always kind of done it this way. And they've always kind of won because like the person with like more power generally wins as unfortunate as that is. It's just when this has been going down, I mean, the, 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 the expectation and the anticipation of this happening, like this day was going to come the players association and the owners, major league baseball knew this was happening and they had over a year, clearly over a year at the very least over a year to at least work on it. But I just feel like everything is, is so shifted towards the, the weight of the owner's leverage that because they are so stuck in their in the way that they want things done, it, it hurts the game. It hurts the product and it hurts their workers. Um, and I guess that kind of applies to a lot of job spaces out there. So, man, this is this is not fun. Uh, well, that's what fun. so on yeah. 670 yesterday, Bruce Levine said that he said, like, you know, like the the 
there's a lawyer, you know, Dan Hallam, I think is for major league baseball. And then there's the guy Meyer. I don't remember his first name. Like he's, he's representing the players, you know, and then you have Rob Manfred representing the owners and you have Tony Clark representing the players. And, and like Bruce was funny. as who's representing the fans? Because it gets brutal, man. Like you were, you know, I was like nine years old in 1994 when, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf had a big part in, like mm-hmm. that White Sox team not finishing that season. And that team was awesome. Like that team might've went to the, that team I thought was going to go to the world series. Like I was nine, but like, you know, the adults in my life were like, this team's awesome. Like they might go to the mm-hmm. world series. And like, you know, my dad has buddies that have still like not watched baseball since then. Like it was bad. Like, it, you know, like they missed the playoffs and the world series and part of the next yep. season. And there were people that just like left the game completely because you know, greedy players and greedy owners now, yeah, you know, I mean, and I just don't, imagine? I just don't know, man. Like, and this is the first time that it's, you know, like the social media yeah. landscape's different and the media landscape's different, but yeah, that's why I would still, yeah, like, I, I, I'd be pretty surprised if they miss games. Like, yeah. I, I think this hurts more for, you know, guys like us who were like waking up, like waiting for rumors and like wanting to talk about stuff like the off season sucks. But I mean, yeah, like it's 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 pretty brutal, and there's people that really don't have time for it when it's an entertainment product, and people could just decide to like spend their money elsewhere, or do something else instead. Yeah, that '94 season, it just stops, just done. It's over, all of it done, and it even impacted the '95 White Sox too, which they won a ton of games and had a chance to win a World Series as well. I mean, I, yeah, it's it's of course, of course, when the White Sox are good, this is what yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, how about the draft? You, you brought that up. How important is the draft related to these negotiations, if at all? And how does these negotiations? How do these negotiations impact the minor league baseball draft or major league baseball draft? The yeah. Answers, yeah, I mean, I think it's significant. I've just, I've always like had issues with, like, the point of the draft is so like you make bad teams better. Now the bad teams have definitely exploited the rules and we've talked about you know we've talked about that and the small market teams specifically i mean you should be able to like rebuild through a draft like if you're gonna reward the worst team with the number one pick then there is incentive to not try like if the alternative is like being middle of the pack right that's the difference i don't think anybody would rather like have the number one pick than like you know go deep in the playoffs but you could definitely argue that you'd rather be horrible than okay, you know, and I, and it's a problem and I don't, I don't know how you fix it. Now I would imagine there'll be some sort of system with bonus pools like we've talked about. And, you know, I think the international draft is coming cause that's like a whole nother thing. Like, but I don't think that's like a contentious issue. Like I think that gets agreed to fairly easily. I just don't know the, like what you were talking about. Like, I think the players equate spending, with winning and i i don't i like kind of think they're wrong about that like i i think bad teams like we've talked about could just like take on bad contracts and keep losing but hey they spent more you know so do the players really care about like do do they want to make money you know like do they want to get everybody paid or do they want like everybody trying because i think it's too i think it's both i think it's different because i don't i don't think you can necessarily do both like there will always be teams not trying because it's just a more intelligent way of doing business than everybody trying to be like 500 or something like that. That doesn't really make any sense. So I I think there will be changes to the draft. I think there'll be changes to the free agency model. I hate that 
you know, teams have to forfeit draft picks to sign players. Like, like you want to incentivize teams to sign good players, right? So, like, why are you making them give up draft picks to sign players that are good? Now, you know, if you want to reward a pick to the team that lost a guy, like, I, I think that makes tons of sense. But I don't know why it has to be, like, an even swap, right? Like, I, I don't really get, like, you know, if the White Sox, you know, when we come back from this whole thing, like, if the White Sox sign Michael Conforto, who's a really good fit for them, like they have to forfeit their second round pick. And then mm-hmm. the Mets get an extra pick like after the comp round B or whatever, or after the second round. Like the Mets should get that pick. But like, why should the White Sox have to forfeit one? Like it doesn't make any sense, right? Like the Cubs are wrestling with this right now with the Carlos Correa rumors. Everybody would give up a second round pick to like have 10 years of Carlos Correa. It's a no It's a no-brainer. Like it's totally fine. But this was the Rodon debate too. It's like... You know, if you put the qualifying offer on him, like he probably does accept it because why would somebody pay him and give up like a pick? And even the teams that would, you know, it's not 30 teams that would, you know, it might be five, you know? So then like if two of those five are rebuilding at the time, well, you can take those guys out too. So then your market's like completely cratered. I just, I think the free agency system's stupid. I think that gets fixed um, for sure. But (laughs) <laughs> I think we could sit here and do like, these things are easy, man. Like it, yeah. this all comes down to, you know, money and the players trying to get like a bigger piece of the pie because they gave up so much of it in like the last two agreements. Yeah. I thought it was just so egregious to have a first round draft pick attached to a free agent. It's just such a deterrent for, for teams. And now it's a yeah. second round pick. Yeah. But I mean, but it's still like, it's still hard. Yeah. Like, sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but like, you know, even if like you're the Cubs right now, like you have a top 10 pick in round two last year, the Cubs, you know, they, they drafted a high school guy in the second round pick and or in the second round and they paid him over $2 million, which is over slot. Well, that's like essentially another first rounder. So if you're bad, like that's an important pick now. Yes. You'd, you'd give it up for Carlos Correa. Fine. But, but like you might not for, you know, to sign Raciel Iglesias or, you know what I mean? Like somebody like, like it's a real like discussion. It's not just like on Twitter, people come at me all the time for that. Like, oh, it's a second round pick. Who cares? I'm like, yeah, but it's not really about that. It's about like the flexibility that it gives you. And if you're a team that's not great, that's like trying to rebuild through the draft, like it's just like an important piece of like the entire bonus pool that you're like now forfeiting. So yeah, the, the whole system's kind of, kind of wacky and I don't, really like it yeah there you go uh, it's pretty well said right there what about the international signing period james uh we're gonna get into the white Sox preview as well so stick around to this podcast a few more little tidbits that we want to get to on this episode before we let you go go bears by the way one more win they're uh, back in the playoff hunt uh so we're looking at the oscars colas saga so reported that he's agreed to a deal with the white Sox. Man, how many months ago was that already, James? Yeah, it's been right? a, it's been a long time for Oscar so, Colas. It's not official, and of course, you know we're waiting for the international signing period to take form. But how do you believe it's going to play out? Do you think it's all going to come to fruition? Oscar Colas, you know, signs with the White Sox without a hitch. How do you think this is going to go? Yeah, so I think the Oscar Colas is going to be the next major White Sox signing because they're not allowed to sign big league players. So, you know, January 15th, uh, that period is still going to happen. Um, Nobody in the international signing period is a 40-man roster player, so they're all allowed to be signed. So that'll be cool. Like, you know, if we get through this holiday season and, you know, it's still kind of this, like, moribund pace of, like, nothing happening, like, you will have an international period, which which is fun for us and fun for dorks like me, obviously. Um, 
but yeah, like so the White Sox have a reported agreement with Oscar Colas, two point seven million dollars. Like I'll have a preview up on the website, you know, you know, within the next week, and then you know we'll have a, a bunch of stuff like after he actually signs. And they do have there's like another sixteen year old Dominican outfielder Eric Hernandez that seems interesting. That's close to a million dollars, I'm told. Um, but that's all that I have kind of right now. So that's you know three point seven million. They have like right around five point four to spend. You know, some of those could be just like more of the traditional international sign, like $400,000 guys and stuff like that. But yeah, like the period's going to happen. There are some other like hot, like I guess like well-regarded, like Cesar Prieto is a Cuban second, 22-year-old Cuban second baseman, hits left-handed. The White Sox have not been linked to him. It's been mostly Houston. I think he probably wants to get paid though. And because of the, you know, they push back the period. I just, I don't know if he's going to be able to sign in January. Cause I don't know if anybody has enough money, you know, to, to convince him to sign. Remember January 15th is when this happens. These players were supposed to sign this past July, but both periods were moved back to the following January. So it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Um, like it always is on this market, but yeah, like Oscar Colas is coming January 15th. The White Sox can put it on their official Twitter and do all that stuff. Like, even though they can probably do nothing else. So, you know, that'll give us something to talk about. Um, and then we don't have to get into, you know, like wh- where he's going or anything. We'll do that like after he signs. But, um, you know, that that part is is interesting, at least to me, like in here at Future Sox, like the minor minor league signings will probably happen throughout the offseason because those guys aren't in the players union. So, you know, it doesn't really affect them at all. So Oscar Colas. 23 years old, turns 24 in September. So 23-year-old international signing, come on down. The White Sox are super committed to their resources internally, and that's where I wanted to end the podcast with you, James, is the 40-man roster and how much the White Sox really do believe in their depth in the farm system. I think this is uh, – it's been apparent to – the way I see how the White Sox operate their business, right, in terms of the free agent period, the trade deadline, and uh, you know every offseason that you know around the GM meetings or the winter meetings, you know, teams are talking about trade negotiations. The White Sox seem to value what they have internally in terms of their depth, and it allows them financial flexibility to say, okay, we don't want to commit. $25 million annually to a singular player or even $30 million a year uh, because, you know, they want to be, they want to be open about it. Uh, and it's, I think they're allowed to do that, James, because they have some depth in the farm system. Now I'm not talking about second base and I guess this does apply to catcher, despite how I feel about the position. What do you do with Zach Collins and Sebi Zavala? If you're going out and committing to a backup catcher similar to what the Cubs signed in Jan Gomes for a two-year deal, six and a half mil per, I mean, then you're committing to one player to be that role on a team that has maybe a guy in Zach Collins who isn't a finished product or in the eyes of the White Sox feel like there's more there and they're unwilling to give up on that player. Same thing sort of has to do with right field in this situation just based on where they stand internally. They need a second baseman. Do you think they can get away? Because we talked about James Fegan uh, with this, you know, last week with Fegan as well. You know, he brought up this point. 
maybe the White Sox feel better about throwing Gavin Sheets, Andrew Vaughn, Adam Engel, Luis Robert, Eloy Jimenez out in the outfield consistently with Leary Garcia as your super utility man, attacking the market for second baseman, maybe trading for that player, maybe spending your resources. You know, like we're going to get into the the payroll here in a second because I know you have thoughts on that too. The, the White Sox aren't done spending, is what I'm saying. So I, you know, with all of that, it's just I'm thinking out loud here. The value that they place on their 40 man roster the value that, that they place upon the options within their 40-man roster and those who they think realistically can impact the big league club and how it affects their approach in the offseason. I think it's a real thing. And I think, you know, because of the time and the resources spent on developing their products, homegrown products, we've seen several. I mean, we've seen a number of, of homegrown signings, whether it's international, drafted, developed, traded for, and developed. I mean, this is it's an impressive 40 man roster of homegrown talent. However, we see that it's not enough yet. There, there needs to be more. So I'm just, you know, thinking spitballing, thinking out loud here, James, get, get your reaction to that. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I think, you know, I think Andrew Vaughn, obviously, you know, you uh, know, Andrew Vaughn quite well, he, well, you know, yeah. So, I mean, I think he's part of that core. I think he'll be here. I think Gavin, she'd shown, showed that he's useful. I don't know that he's an everyday right fielder. Um, you know, and then I think Jake Berger is probably useful too, even though they have nowhere for him to play. Now, I think that's different though than, you know, some of the other guys that are on their 40 were added to protect them from rule five years ago. And they just like, haven't kind of progressed and they're still on the roster, you know, like Blake Rutherford and, you know, like we've, we've talked about Mike Rodolfo so much, but I mean, you know, like something is going to give here, I think, over the next year and a half or so with Adolfo and with Rutherford and probably even Zach Collins. I think we've seen Zach Collins like in a true backup role, like probably isn't going to work for the style of player that he is. You know, I think, you know, he might be able to hit <clears throat> righties at a decent clip. He's obviously not great behind the plate, you know, but I think a team that uses platoons well like an Oakland or somebody like that like I, I think he's a big leaguer you know but here I don't know and you know I do think they probably need a better backup catcher and I'm not sure that guy's in the organization right now so something something will give somewhere um you know they they they're 40 man like you said it's it's either 35 you said 35 I thought it was 35 or 36 I wasn't sure after yeah, yeah right. I, I wasn't sure after Leary so I mean yeah like they have some excess you know there's just some excess on there like I look I don't think Blake Rutherford is competing for a big league corner spot right now, but you know, they clearly still like Blake Rutherford and he has another option. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. Adolfo is a much different situation, obviously. I hope it doesn't prevent them from adding in right field because as much as you and I both like Andrew Vaughn, like I don't want him to be the everyday right fielder, but he should be on the team. You know, Gavin Sheets is useful as a left-handed bat. Um, so yeah, like I, I just, I don't, I think they, they need to add. They, they need a, they need a second baseman. You know, we, we followed Romy Gonzalez all season. It, it was a surprise to us too, and it's great. And I kind of thought Romy Gonzalez was the new Larry Garcia, but they've brought back Larry Garcia. So, you know, I don't think that means that Romy is like all of a sudden your second baseman. Like maybe he's your second utility guy, you know? So, yeah, like they they have room to maneuver, um, but they do. They've had a lot of guys on their forty, you know, that are big leaguers probably, 
you know, or right. like up and down guys that are your your typical four A guy or whatever, which is good. It's more you know it's better than what we used to be able to say. Um, but they do probably need to add, and I'm not sure the backup catcher, the starting right fielder, or the starting second baseman are necessarily in the organization like today. So mm-hmm. you know it could be crazy as Rick Hahn alluded to, you know, as soon as we come back from this lockout, like they could have like a bunch of moves because like, I do think teams can talk right now. So, and even if they can't talk, like I'm sure he's texting other GMs, like, you know, whatever, like, Hey, what do you think about this for this? Cause they really don't have anything else to do right now. So, you know, that's going to be one of the more interesting things to see in spring training and like, who's actually on that roster and who projects to be. Yeah. Rick Hahn, he, I mean, he said, we mentioned it earlier in the podcast that it, as the lockout began, he said, you know, we are not done. So, you know, we'll keep that in mind. The White Sox payroll right now at $170 million, just under that clip. And the luxury tax, of course, $210 million at this point as the lockout began. We'll see how things change, hopefully, as things get negotiated and fixed or agreed upon. Maybe not necessarily fixed is the right word, but agreed upon between the two sides in the MLBPA and, and the owners. And, boy, um, so – Man, I'm just thinking about that. Anyway, $210 million is the luxury tax. At this point, the White Sox just under $170 million total in payroll for 2022. I, you think like that's going to go up, of course, right? I mean, it's, al- it. it's already a record payroll. Like, I just right. I don't know how it can't. Like, I guess unless you trade Kimbrell, you know, for prospects and somebody like takes Keichel somehow from you. I don't know how it doesn't. Right. I don't know how it doesn't go up because even if they, even if they don't do enough, right? Like say they they trade for a cheap second baseman, and you know whatever. Like the Jock Peterson dream finally happens, you know, and you know, and then you get a pitcher like like Sean Mania or whatever. Like I don't I don't know that it'll be Sean Mania. I'm just saying it's a guy they've liked in the past. I mean, you're still in the 180s probably, right? Even with that. Like your team's expensive and it's going to be expensive regardless. And if they spend on, you know, one significant piece, which I was led to believe by people I trust and beat writers, by the way, that, you know, thought that that was like definitely possible, you know, at this point that would probably most likely be Michael Conforto, I'm assuming just because like all the other guys kind of signed. But I mean, if that happens, like you're definitely like in the one nineties, you're at 170 right now. So it's a record high payroll. Now, your young players are getting more expensive. Like those deals were good and they're, they're cost efficient, but they're definitely like not cheap. Like guys are going to start being more expensive, but guys come off the books too. So, you know, the payroll in 23 and 24 and 25, like there's, there's money to spend in those years. So maybe they, you know, once the agreement gets hashed out here, like Jerry Reinsdorf has not been afraid to spend money and the owner's, in general, haven't been afraid to spend money like right after a new agreement is signed. Usually that's like owners start going nuts, like because they're like, oh, we got five years to, you know, figure this out and move it all around. So, you know, I do expect more money to be spent. And, you know, whether what happened pre lockout was a little bit nefarious. So the owners could say, like, hey, look how much money we spent or not. Like, look, those guys still got paid, but it wasn't by some of your perennial powers, right? And some of your your locked-in playoff teams. Most of those teams haven't done very much yet, and I think there's a reason for that. That's James Fox, Senior Editor at Future Sox. My name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. We're going to stick around for you. Check us out on futuresox.com for 
all of what you need to know about the White Sox minor league system. Like James said early in the podcast, we're gonna make some uh, we're gonna make some content. We're, we're gonna look at you know some position players that we value, uh, as well as what James has previewed for the international signing period. We mentioned Oscar Colas, maybe some player interviews if they're up for it, if they're allowed to do that. Uh, it's a little murky times these days in Major League Baseball, but at least uh, at least we have something to look forward to, and that's the end of a lockout, whenever that may be, unless baseball just ends. This is it. No more baseball forever. Uh, <laughs> I think we could live for the next couple of months, but you know, hopefully Major League Baseball and the owners figure this out, and the MLBPA, I should say, um, so we could we can enjoy a product next year in the White Sox who win a World Series finally. So for James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Glad James was able to get all of this off of his chest as well. We'll talk to you all next time.